Not too much coffee today, so sitting down is not, not an option, if you know what I'm saying? So, all right, let's go ahead and um, let's jump right in. Here's, I'm going to start with this, actually, tonight. Um, I have a confession to make. All right, is that okay with everybody? Is that acceptable? Some of you? I don't, I, don't feel, I don't feel safe at this moment. Like, the one o'clock service, like, I asked them, and they were like, sure, you can talk to us, you know, and they were very welcoming and receptive. You guys are just like, you know, do what you want. So, I'm going to start with a confession tonight, all right? Remember what happens in Wednesday evening service, stays in Wednesday evening service, all right? Um, here's my confession. You guys ready for it? It's a big one. Sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, I can be a control freak. Slim, Slim is like, amen. All right, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, he gets it. He gets it. Surprise, right? No, not really, right? I can be a control freak. How many of you guys are kind of like me? Sometimes There's certain things that you, come on, listen here, guys. I, I trust less than half of you, all right? No, you want, I, yes, I, that, no, I said it right. I said it right. I trust the ones that raise their hands. Um, the rest of you guys, I, I don't know if I believe you. It's not everything, but there's certain things, certain things for me that I want done a certain way. Certain things that this is just, this is how it is, this is how it needs to be. I like the feeling of control. And maybe it's genetic because my kids like the feeling of control too. Um, for example, we go to Kroger, we go to Home Depot, and those are, those are like, those two and Target, those are like their favorite stores because, because the carts have steering wheels. Yeah, yeah, all the parents of young kids said amen, right? Um, the carts have steering wheels. So my toddlers are just like, yes, the girls are just, they love the steering wheels. Why? They like to feel like they're in control. Now, they're spinning the wheel, you know, hard left, and if I ever were to do the things that they're doing with the steering wheel, I'd probably flip the cart over, hurt them badly, whatever. But they like feeling like they're in control, and we go by the toy aisle, and they're just like spinning the wheel, and like, Dad, this way. And I start veering that way, and then I'm like, psych, no, we're not gonna. And they start crying, and then, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I haven't done it yet, I haven't done it yet. Uh, they, oh, they love that feeling of control. They love to feel like they are the ones making the decision. And so uh, there's, a, there's a story there's a story that I came across recently, um, just ties in with, I, I think you guys will appreciate this. It's about a, a young man named Jack, and Jack was out for a jog, and as he was doing this, he passed by a cliff. As he came to uh, this cliff, he had got a little bit too close, and he actually stumbled and fell off this cliff. And as he was falling, he just began trying to reach towards the side to grab whatever he could. And finally, his hand caught a hold of a branch. And as he grabbed this branch, he began to cry out. Uh, he began to cry out. He began, hello, can anyone hear me? Is anyone up there? And suddenly he heard a voice responding back. Jack, can you hear me? He was so excited. Yes, I, I can hear you. I can hear you. I'm down here, and the voice says, are, are you all right? Is everything, are you okay? And he says, I'm, I'm okay. Who is this? And the voice says, I am the Lord. And Jack says, the, the Lord, you mean, you mean God? Yes, I, I am God. I, I'm going to help you. And he says, oh, that's wonderful. I promise that I will do whatever you tell me to do. You can't bargain. Oh, I will do. And God says, no, 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 we'll, we'll deal with that after we, let's get you down first. And so um, he says, Jack, I need you to do something. And yes, God, whatever it is, I'll do it. Jack, I need you to let go of the branch. Jack paused for a minute. And then he cried out, is anyone else up there? He didn't want to let go of the branch, right? How many of you guys, that's, that's you sometimes. God's like, okay, let go and I'll take care. Is anyone else up there? Who else can I go to? Who else has an idea? What's uh, who's the next plan, right? If we're honest, if we're honest, we all really like control. Some of you, it may, it may be little things, maybe little things uh, that we think of, like you have to be the one to drive. You might drive like a maniac, but at least you're the one driving. You have to be the one at the steering wheel. Maybe the dishes have to be done your way. They have to be stacked the way that you like them to be stacked. 
I'm going to cause division in some houses. Um, maybe uh, maybe the, the toilet paper has to be placed on the holder the exact right way. And if it's backwards, so help me. But genuinely, a lot of times this manifests itself in a much, much, much deeper way. Because what do we find ourselves doing? We find ourselves staying up all night worrying about the future, not just planning, but worrying about the future, stressing about what could be. In fact, if we're really honest, many of us probably spend more time worrying about what could be than enjoying the things that are, the hypotheticals in our mind, and what if, and what if, and what if, and it sucks the joy from us because we have to have control, and the moment something comes in and threatens our control, oh, God, help us in that moment. When our control is gone, when something, when it feels like we're not the ones in charge anymore, we love control. And if we're really honest, we can call it what it is. It's an addiction. We have to be the ones. If we're not, everything goes out the window. We must be the one calling the shots. As we come to the scripture tonight, I really want the word of God to inform us in this. We're going to press pause, and we're going to get context, and we're going to begin studying this passage. But we're going to pick right back up, and we're going to see how the Word of God really steps in and how it informs the control freak as it commandeers the control freak in all of us. So tonight, I want you to join me in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, chapter number three, is where we're going to be tonight. And um, about a year ago, um, probably nine months a year ago, I preached a message from Jonah chapter 1. So if you remember that, we're going to do a quick recap so we know where we're at in the book. Um, I, I want you to understand why this book is written, how this book is written, because this is really going to help us to understand the meat of this passage. It's going to help us to be able to jump into the Word of God and really know what's taking place here in chapter number 3. So as we step into this story... Uh, what we really find is we find uh, one of the most unique books in the whole Bible. I love the book of Jonah. And it's not just because of the sensational, you know, Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the great fish story, although it's a great story. Uh, but sometimes I think that story actually um, causes us not to catch some of the deeper things that are taking place in this book. Because we imagine it being, um, I'm guessing the VeggieTales Jonah, right? Uh, I, I read the other night, um, we read uh, from a storybook Bible to our three and four year old girls every night before bed. And we read the story, actually, uh, ironically, last night, just it was in schedule last night, we read the story of the book of Jonah. And so it was a fascinating story, and it actually ends at the end of chapter number three. It's chapter number four that we're going to talk about next week is not even mentioned in like any kid's storybook Bible, right? Because we end the story tonight, it's going to be a happy ending, and we can go home feeling good and things like that. Um, if you want to go home feeling good and not feel bad again, don't come back next. Should I say that? Um, chapter number four of Jonah is totally different, but chapter number three of Jonah, uh, it's, it's kind of this, it's this really interesting piece that we're going to get to in just a moment. But Jonah's unique in this. Most minor prophets, this is a minor prophet of the Bible, most minor prophets are what we would call, um, they're books of prophecy, um, or they're almost like some kind of epistle or a sermon. God says these things and kind of gives this discourse. And so if you read through most minor prophets, it's primarily some kind of a discourse or a prophecy. Jonah is the opposite of that. In fact, Jonah's actual time prophesying is very, very, very minimal. We're going to see that here in a minute. Uh, but what actually happens in the book of Jonah is the book of Jonah is a narrative. It's a story. Three of the four chapters are almost entirely, if not entirely, story-driven. Um, the one chapter that would be an exception to that is chapter number two. It's kind of a psalm or a poem being written to God as a, a prayer being written in that form from Jonah. Um, but what we find is we find a story primarily. Uh, secondly, another interesting thing about Jonah is Jonah is written uh, as a prophet going to a non-Israelite nation. Most of the time, the word of the Lord comes to a prophet and says, go prophesy to Judah, go prophesy to Israel, go prophesy to this city, to that city. Um, and so they go to a specific area, but it's always Jewish. That's not so with the book of Jonah. God comes and God says, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is an Assyrian city. In fact, a capital of the Assyrian empire. It's not a Jewish city. And so God is sending him to a non-Jewish audience, which is very unique. 
Um, another thing that's very unique about this book is this book is written um, in a form of writing that's called uh, satire. Now, that does not mean it's a fictional book. This is a real person. These are all real locations. Um, so the best we can tell, this is a real story. There's not a solid reason to believe otherwise, but it's written in this form that today we think of as fictionalized. But it's not about truth or fiction when it comes to this. What satire means is that satire takes a person, lifts them up for ridicule, while at the same time that it's lifting this person up, making fun of them, laughing at them and all their foibles, Satire points a mirror back at the reader and says, hmm, this is you. So as we read the story of Jonah, we look and we say, Jonah, what? Oh, man, how dense can you be, Jonah? Oh, wow, Jonah, what is wrong with you? That's me. And we find Jonah's sin in our hearts all of a sudden. We look at him and we laugh at him. We think, oh, ha, ha, Jonah. And we step in the same stuff. We do the same thing. And really throughout the book, what we find is the people that you would expect to do right, a.k.a. Jonah, don't do right. And the people that you would expect to do wrong, don't do wrong. You look at the people that should follow God, and they don't. You look at people that, by your logic, shouldn't follow God, and they do. And so we find that right from the very beginning. And so as the book is introduced, we meet Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah means this. Jonah means dove. Dove. Peaceful, gentle, you know, picture of the Holy Spirit. Dove, right? Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. Not a very, like, peaceable, likable, warm, cuddly kind of guy at all. And his father's name, it says this, Jonah the dove, the son of Amittai. Amittai means this, the best translation we have for this, faithfulness. Now, here's what your reaction is supposed to be. The audience that would read this book and understand this book, as they start reading the story of Jonah, they'd heard it from parents and grandparents, they start reading, this is the story, the word of the Lord comes to the dove, son of faithfulness. Okay, right. Dove, son of faith, yeah, dove, son of faithfulness. Okay, yes. Because if anything, he is the least peaceable and the least faithful of any of the prophets. And so we're introduced to this book that way, the dove, son of faithfulness. And so as the scripture begins to unfold, we find a few things about Jonah in chapter number one. And as we're going to come to the end of our introduction, we find a few things about Jonah in chapter number one. Uh, first of all, we find that Jonah is disobedient. <laughs> He's disobedient. God says, go this direction. And what does he do? The entire opposite way. God says, go about 500 miles northeast. And he says, mm, you know what? I think I can go 2,500 miles west by sea, right? I don't want anything to do with it. And so he gets on a boat, goes to Tarshish. We find that not only throughout all of this is he disobedient, but he's foolish, in the middle of chapter number one, watch this. This is just mind-blowing how ridiculous Jonah can be. As he's in this boat, great storm comes. Uh, they wake up Jonah, who is sleeping in the bottom of the ship because apparently his conscience is messed up enough that he can do that. And they come to him, and they said, who, do you, who is your God? Tell us, pray to your God. Verse number nine, chapter number one, he says to them, the sailors, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven, which has made the sea and dry land. Anyone see something funny there? I serve the God that made the sea and the dry land. And I'm running from him on the sea. What's wrong with you, Jonah? What's your problem? And we go through the rest of this chapter, and in fact, until chapter number two, so chapter number one, verse number 17, they finally throw him overboard. And what we actually see, verse 16 is great, because the men feared the Lord, and specifically, um, your Bible probably has capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's referring to Yahweh specifically, the God of the Israelites. The men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. These people started following God. They started obeying the true God. And these are heathens, non-Jews. These are not people that you would ever expect to make this decision. And what do they do? They repent and they follow God. 
while the prophet says, throw me overboard, where he probably thinks that he's going to die, until verse 17. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Up until this point in the story, God has spoken to Jonah. God has called Jonah, but Jonah says nothing to God. Jonah says nothing to God up until this point in the story. And then we come to chapter number two. In chapter number two, Jonah says all of the right things. In chapter number one, Jonah had said all of the right things. But in chapter number two, he continues. He says all the right things. We, in fact, it looks like, it looks like Jonah is showing what we would call repentance. And he even comes to verse number nine of chapter two, where we find maybe the best summary of the scriptures at the end of verse number nine. Watch this. From the pen of Jonah, the faithless prophet, he says this, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. What a wonderful summary of the scriptures. Salvation is of the Lord. And after this prayer, we see that the Lord spake into the fish. It vomited out Jonah upon dry land. And we find ourselves now in chapter number three. As we come into chapter number three, uh, we find a lot of repenting. We're going to define that in just a moment. We find a lot of repenting. We find a lot of turning away. We find a lot of uh, turning from one thing to do another. We find looks like Jonah has repented. We're about to step into the world of the Ninevites. We're going to see them turning away. And even at the end of the chapter, we're going to see the word repent, the word turn, be applied to God. And what we're going to look at, well, what does that mean? What do all these things, how does this theme tie in here within the book of Jonah? Well, look with me at verses 1 and 2. Look at me, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. You know what's, there's a few things that are interesting here about God's patience with Jonah. That's really what we see demonstrated in these verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Realistically, how gracious of God. God could have said, Jonah, I'm done with you. Jonah, I'm through with this. Jonah, how are you so stubborn? How are you so faithless? And in fact, some part of us, we want God to say that to Jonah, don't we? There's a part of us that look and they're like, why would you use Jonah? What a moron Jonah is. Why would you keep going back to him? But remember the point of the book of Jonah. Oh, wait, that's me. So all of a sudden, we find ourselves being related to this faithless prophet. And God once again steps in and he says, the word of the Lord came a second time. You know what the word of the Lord didn't say? Jonah, you're such a moron. Could he have? Yes. Would he have been just in saying so? Probably. But you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say that. It's kind of amazing, in fact, what he doesn't say. It's almost as if the fish was a lesson enough. He doesn't beat Jonah over the head with his sin. Instead, what does he do? He says, Jonah, let's do this again. Go to Nineveh and give them the message that I bid you. And so Jonah, what does Jonah do? Verse number three. And Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned or overthrown, excuse me. And so what we find is we find now, really, it looks like to this point, it looks like he's obeying, oh, he's coming in, and he's finally going to Nineveh, and he steps into the city. He goes a whole day's journey into the city and begins preaching. And what does he say? I mean, can you imagine this journey to Nineveh? It's about 500 miles, okay? Weeks to get to Nineveh uh, by anywhere that a fish would be able to reach, okay? So he's got to travel to Nineveh. This is a lot of time to prepare a message, to think about the words of the Lord, to wax eloquent about uh, what God is trying to communicate to these Ninevites, about how they should turn and repent, about how uh, the Lord is a gracious God and how he cares for them and he wants them to turn from their wicked ways. And if they don't turn from the wicked ways, there's going to be justice and judgment. And so he has all this time to prepare this eloquent message. He gets to Nineveh and he says, in 40 days, the city will be overthrown. 
In 40 days, the city will be overthrown. In 40 days, the city will be overthrown. Profound, right? Wow, Jonah. You know, what it, you know what it looks like knowing the character of Jonah, knowing the message that God had for the Ninevites based on chapter number one, uh, when he told them this is, here's the command, right? God says this, he says, verse number two, cry against it, their wickedness has come up before me. He's like, you know what? I was told to cry against it. I can cry against it. 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. It's all coming down 40 days from now. So what's going on in this message? There are a few things that he says that are interesting, but I think it's even more interesting what he doesn't say. He says 40 days. He identifies you, Ninevites, overthrown. That's right. Get your act together. Overthrown. It's coming 40 days. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say how it's being overthrown. He doesn't say an enemy is going to come into the city. He doesn't say there's going to be a plague. He doesn't say earthquake. He doesn't say fire and brimstone. He doesn't say anything. Um, you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say why they're going to be overthrown. He doesn't go in and say, you guys are wicked, and it's going to be overthrown. No, he just says 40 days, and then it was going to be overthrown. 40 days, and then it was going to be overthrown. And you know what's really most striking about this message from, of a prophet of God? There's no mention of God in his message. There's no, hey, God says this. Yahweh has declared this, the true God, this is what he is saying. No, there's none of that. He goes around and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Overturned is another translation of that word. Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Nineveh is going to be overthrown, 40 days. That is his message. It's almost like Jonah is trying to sabotage the work of God. It's almost like he's going to, I mean, this is mailing it at its finest. I mean, if I came and did my job this way, you guys would be like, awesome, we're going to be done in like 60 seconds. Why can't you preach eight-word messages? I don't know. I'm sorry. You know what's funny about this? Is eight words in English. In Hebrew, five words. It's even shorter. Jonah's five-word message. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he goes around and he preaches this. I mean, realistically, wouldn't chapter 2, verse 9 be a better message? Like, Jonah, if you're really trying... Say that and then say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Like something like that. No, no, he doesn't want, no. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But watch this, verse number five. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. Somehow, some way, God still worked even through apathetic, pathetic Jonah. God still did the work. Now, we don't know. Maybe the people pressed Jonah and said, wait a second. What do you mean we're going to be overthrown? Who is sending this? Maybe they asked questions of Jonah. We, we don't know. Uh, there's some people that think that maybe word got to Nineveh before Jonah did because he's, you got to imagine, this is Jonah dragging his feet. He's like, I guess i got to go to Nineveh now. Well, there are people that are trading between the nations. Word travels, word spreads. Um, a guy gets vomited up by a fish, kind of makes a scene, okay? Like, someone's going to notice, this guy smells really bad. He's a little bit um, unhealthy looking. What's wrong with you? Oh, you got thrown up by a fish. Okay, have a nice day. They're like, that's gonna get around, right? And so there's an idea that maybe they know this is that Hebrew prophet that that had happened to. And so they know, oh, the God of the Hebrews, because God's reputation went before him even in this time. You have to understand that. And so there, who knows, but what we do know is that God still worked. What we do know is that even on this message, God was in the hearts of the Ninevites. And what does it say they did? They believed God. They believed God. And so really what we see here, because we're looking at Jonah, and Jonah is a great example of what not to do. And then ironically, the Ninevites are a great example of what to do. These wicked people that said in verse number uh, three, verse number two and three of chapter number one, I mean, these wicked people are a great example of actually what we ought to behave like. Watch what they do. First of all, they believe. They believe. And understand that this belief, this is acknowledging that there is a God that knows better than you do. There is something that we are doing that is not in line with something that we should be doing. 
And so this belief begins to affect their behavior. What do we see next? They actually fast. They fast. Which biblically, when you look at it and you study fasting, fasting is one of those things that oftentimes we can lay aside in favor of other disciplines, but fasting is a huge part of biblical repentance. One author said it this way, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. We cover up what's inside us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. Fasting reminds us that we are sustained by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Food does not sustain us. God sustains us. And so here we find these wicked Ninevites. They believe God, even with one of the worst possible messages in our human minds that they could possibly have received. They believe God. They begin to fast. They say, we are not going to touch food. We aren't going to touch water. And what do they do? They put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was um, modern equivalent. Closest thing I can think of would be burlap. How many of you guys, you guys have you know, great, comfortable burlap clothes? How many of you guys are going to go to bed tonight and you're going to pull up your burlap sheets, right? I mean, like a thread count of like seven, and you're just going to cozy up, right? And it's going to be all How many of you guys are itching thinking about it, all right? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's miserable. This stuff was, sackcloth is made out of goat's hair, all right? Goats are not like, they're not cuddly, all right? They're not like, I mean, it's not laying, they're not, they're not gentle to, you know, the touch. Goat hair. And so they put on the sackcloth. These are mourning clothes. These are clothes of, of weeping. What this is, this is an outward expression of this inward condition. This is, this is them showing the repentance externally. And who participates in this repentance? Look at this in verse number, verse number five. From the greatest of them, even to the least of them. Everyone participates. And how did everyone participate? Was Jonah so good as he was going through the city for a few days preaching this? Was he so good and so effective that he got to everyone and everyone heard the news? Was that Jonah? I mean, because Jonah's a go-getter. <laughs> now, what happens? Jonah isn't even the one that tells everybody. But what's really, this is, this is incredible. Watch this. And I think this is key to understanding this chapter. Verse number six, word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He laid his robe from him, covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then what did he do? Verse number seven. He caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. And why? So the king gets up and the king repents and the king says, we all need to repent. We all need to get on this. Tell everyone that we need to believe God. And so who actually spreads the message? The Ninevites spread the message. They go around making sure everyone knows we are fasting, we are repenting, there's sin. God is coming, God is warning us, and they spread this message. Why? Look at verse number nine. Who can tell? This is an indicator that Jonah did not do a great job of really communicating this message, because he didn't get up and say, if you repent, God will turn from his ways. How do we know that? Verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from this fierce anger that we perish not? Maybe, just maybe, God will change his mind if we change ours. That's what they're saying. Maybe, just maybe, God will change his mind if we change ours. If we repent, maybe he'll turn from this thing that he says that he will do. Which really, this pushes us into the topic of, God, of the judgment of God. God's judgment on human behavior. And this is a topic that it seems like we either love to talk about or we hate to talk about, right? Really, really this, this reveals to us two uh, wrong responses 
to the idea of God's judgment. The first of those that's very common in our culture is the rejection of God's judgment. A good God would not be a judging God. And this is a common belief, but it's coming from a place of misconception. We'll get to that in just a moment. Because the second of these things, uh, it rejoices in God's judgment for the wrong reasons. It's the type of, this is the type of belief, the type of people who are, yes, there's a hell, and I'm glad someone's going there. That's not God's view of judgment. But understand the biblical view of judgment. Judgment is not a product of hate. It is not the opposite of God's love. In fact, judgment is a very necessary component of who God is. Let me give you an example. Um, I have four small children. My oldest is four. I got twin boys that are one. All right, a lot going on at my house. As I'm parenting them, I have to use something called judgment. Now, does that mean I sit up on a throne and my kids have to come before me and beg for, and I'm just, no! Is that, is that what goes on in my house? You're like, I don't know, maybe. No! No! But when I see my child behaving in such a way that I know is going to be harmful to them, I have to use judgment and I have to step in. When one of our older girls are you know, suffocating one of our one-year-old boys with a blanket, never happened, just a fictional situation. Um, <clears throat> when you see them with a blanket wrapped around their brother's neck, oh, well, I don't want to judge your behavior. No, I have to step in. Why? Because I love my daughter and I love my son. I want her to understand that that's harmful behavior, and I want him to survive, okay? Um, when I tell my kids, hey, don't go near the road. Dad, you ruin all of our fun, right? Uh, no, I know what a two-ton vehicle is going to do to my 30-pound child moving at 35 miles an hour. I don't want them experiencing that. And so I have to use judgment to protect and to guide my children. Think of it this way. Here's another example uh, from an opposite space. Let's say that you were to walk out of here tonight, and we have a wonderful safety team, so I do not expect this to happen, but let's say you walk out to your car tonight, um, and you look over, and your passenger window is broken in. And maybe it's one of you ladies, and you realize, I left my purse in the car. And you start opening the doors and looking around, it's nowhere to be found. All of a sudden, cell phone, wallet, cards, money, identification, it's all, it's missing, it's gone. You know what you want in that moment? You want someone to issue judgment. You want someone to get your purse back, right? You want someone to pay for your window. You want something to happen to the person who did this, right? You want justice. Justice does not exist without judgment. Justice does not exist without judgment. And so as we come and we step into this idea of God's judgment, this is not God seeking to devour, seeking to destroy, looking for reasons to throw thunder and lightning down from heaven. This is not what it's talking about. This is talking about there is a great wickedness that has gone up before me. There are people behaving in ways that are unjust, that are, that are wrong, that they are treating their neighbors, fellow brothers and sisters in humankind inappropriately. They are taking out, the, and, if you have, and understand, we're going to talk about this some next week, the Assyrians are not good people. This is not a, a people that just rejects God as bad enough as that is. This is not a people that they're peaceable people and they just worship a different God. The Assyrians were genuinely, in every conceivable way, wicked people. And now, when they hear this message of God, they don't stand up and say, how dare you judge us? No, what do they say? Yeah, you know what? We deserve that. And they turn from what they were doing. They believe God. And what does God do in verse number 10? God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. And he did it not. There are a couple of interesting words here in this chapter that I want, as we're getting to a point. There are a couple of interesting words I want to define as we go through this chapter and as we look at a couple of things, we bring it into the application stage. Uh, the first of these is we saw, look at verse number 10. You see this word, they turned from their evil way. 
Uh, you see uh, verse number nine, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn. That word turn, it literally means to turn. This is talking about, it's a picture, what's happening here. It's that they are moving in a certain direction, and then there's conscious thought that says, we should not go in this direction, therefore, I'm going to begin moving in the opposite way. That's what this word turn means. In fact, it's very similar to this word repent, to turn away from doing one thing with the intent of doing something else. And so as we look, we see the Ninevites. Of course, the Ninevites need to turn. They need to repent. When we look at God repenting, this is not saying that God was going to sin, that it would have been sinful for God to issue judgment. Understand that. What's going on here is that the Bible is saying that he was going to turn from what he was doing, and he was going to turn from this thing that we as human beings would look at. And just the basic definition, evil refers to a calamity refers to something that's a, a tragedy. And God surely would view this as a tragedy, but not an unjust tragedy. So as God is having to issue this judgment, he doesn't desire to issue this judgment. He's watching for their repentance. And then as soon as they turn, what does God do? In response to their turning, he says, okay, great. Glad we don't have to go through with that plan. But what happens here? Really, what I, I want to do, I want to step back, I want to step back a minute. And, and I want to look at verse number five, because I think, I think verse five and six really are key to understanding what's going on here in chapter number three. I think this is the key, because we don't see Jonah much in chapter three, do we? Um, so remember what we're looking at. We're looking at Jonah, who is supposed to be this good example, who's really a pretty terrible example. And we're looking at the heathen Ninevites, the wicked Ninevites, who are supposed to be just this example of filth and scum of the earth, right? The worst possible behaved human beings you could ever imagine. And yet, in this great sense of irony, we see them lifted up as an example to follow. So watch this in verse number five. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, greatest to them even to the least. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid his robe from him, covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. How does the king of Nineveh react when faced with truth? See, really what this chapter is about is this chapter is about a clash of kingdoms. This chapter is about the king of Nineveh, the most important, the most influential, the most powerful human being on the face of the earth in his day and age, being confronted by Almighty God. The ruler of this great section of the earth being confronted by the maker of heaven and earth. And how does he respond? And what this really is, is this is a reflection this is a mirror held up to us. How do we behave? What happens when the king of the universe butts heads with the king of my universe, a.k.a. the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I? What happens when God disagrees with, comes against, steps into my domain? And what happens here in verse number six? The king gets up. He hears the word, hears what's going on. He's sitting on his throne, and a messenger comes and says, hey, there's this Hebrew prophet, and he's a little crazy, but he's coming around, and he's saying that in 40 days, we're going to be overthrown. What does the king do? He gets up off of his throne. He walks away from his throne. He takes off the robe that he is wearing. What are these things? These are symbols of his authority. These are symbols of the power that he has. He is the God of this little kingdom, right? He is the one who makes the decisions. He is responsible for life and death. He doesn't like you. He says, oh, I would probably say something worse than off with your head because they're Assyrians and they're really terrible. Uh, but he, sa he says, hey, you're dead, you're dead. He says, hey, you, we don't want you around, you're not around. I mean, he... Whatever he wants to do with you, he can do with you. Absolute authority, what does he do? Steps off of his throne, takes his robe, lays it aside. Instead of a robe, what does he do? He puts on sackcloth, these mourning garments. Instead of a throne, he doesn't go back on his throne with the sackcloth, right? This isn't some kind of a show, some kind of a ruse. What does he do? He goes and he says, hey, let's gather some ashes. That's going to be my seat. 
He steps away from all of these things. But we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to pray as Jesus modeled and understand this, this idea of the kingdom is something that saturates the New Testament. Uh, Jesus teaches it throughout the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew especially. The longest discourse, in fact, that we have from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you'll see dozens of times that he talks of the kingdom of God. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, what does he pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, speaking of the Father. But in our flesh, that's not a natural prayer to pray. We might be able to say the words, but really what we often want is we want my kingdom come, my will be done. Whereas Jesus prayed, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We want to pray, mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I am the king of my world. But where does this leave us? Where does this leave us when the king of the universe invades our space? There are really only two responses that we can have. The first says this, I am a better king than God is. I am a better king than God is. What happens to the king of Nineveh if he decides that that is true? When God invades his space, comes into his kingdom, declares, I'm going to overthrow it, and he says, no, this is my place, you can't have it. What happens next, or in 40 days? I mean, he's not going to be king in ashes, he's going to be king of the ashes, right? He's going to be sitting on his throne as the city comes crashing down. He's going to be proud, and he's going to be in charge all the way until the place is leveled. Rubble, dust, ash. No more. If he had said, this is what I want, this is what it's going to be, so be it. Or we can turn around and we can say this, God is a better king than I am. God is a better king than I am. And what did the king do? He turned. He said, this is what I was doing, this is what I'll do instead. He traded his robe for sackcloth. He traded his throne for ash. But understand, this is you and me. We each have our own kingdom, and your kingdom cannot coexist with the kingdom of God. Your kingdom cannot coexist with God's kingdom. He's not looking for allies. He's looking for submission. He's not looking for you to say, all right, we're going to partner up. No. He wants control. He wants you. He wants submission to his will. But the problem is that we like to do the ashes thing and climb back on the throne. As one poet, Thomas Carlyle, wrote, men repent again of their repentance. And that's what we want to do. And we're going to see that's what Jonah does. And we tend to be more like Jonah, don't we? God, salvation belongs to you in desperation. That all of a sudden, when things go the way that we want them to, I'm just, okay, you know what? God, I will do what I have to do. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. See you guys later. When in fact, we need to repent of our repenting again. We climb back on the throne. But here's the thing about this too. Climbing back on the throne Going back to our kingdom, trying to take over again, that might be the dumbest thing we can do. Can we just admit that? Because you know, you know who, your own, who your worst enemy is? You are? You know who my worst enemy is? I am. No one lies to myself. No one lies to me like I do. No one deceives me like I do. No one sells me on lies like I do, right? I... I'm terrible for me. I can't even go pursue the things I want because I don't know what I want. And even if I knew what I want, I wouldn't know how to get it. But I don't, because in five minutes, I'm going to want something else. I, I mean, this is, it's amazing. We are, so many times in the scriptures, we're compared to children. It's so appropriate. Because like my, my three-year-old tonight, she, she, I want more soup for dinner, right? I want more soup. I don't want my soup. I want an apple. I don't want the apple. I don't want the banana. Hey, can I have a banana? What is wrong with you, child? But isn't that us? Oh, I want this job, and this job will make me happy. Six months later, I hate this job. Oh, man, this relationship. Oh, wouldn't it be great if I could? That person's dumb. I mean, like we're all over the place. We, oh, man, this would be great. Oh, Oh, wow, wow, wouldn't this make me happy? What is wrong with us? And we climb back on the throne and back on the throne. 
And we think, oh, I can be God. I can control these things. I know what's going on. I can make decisions for myself. What? What is wrong with us? And yet we do it time and time and time again. You know where it will get you? Ashes. Not the ones of your choosing. But understand this. There's hope. Because God's desire is not to come and destroy the people of Nineveh. God didn't send Jonah so he could have an out and feel justified in destroying Nineveh. If God wanted Nineveh destroyed, he could have done it with Jonah 500 miles away. If God wanted to just end the civilization, he could have done so. That wasn't his desire. If you think to the New Testament, John chapter number 3, a verse that probably many of us are familiar with, verse number 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But watch verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jonah wasn't coming as a condemnation for Nineveh. Nineveh Jonah was coming, which he knew and he hated, as a prophet to help save Nineveh. Because watch this. Even as Jonah is prophesying this message, Jonah is a prophet of God. So understand that the prophecy that Jonah gives, God is promising to fulfill the prophecy that Jonah gives. And in fact, he does. Because you look at this, and what is this prophecy? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. What does that word overthrow mean? What does the word overthrow mean? Our minds go to, like, destroy, right? Our minds go to, you know, burn it to the ground, fire and brimstone. If you go, if you look up, uh, if you look up, especially when, uh, the, uh, I'm preaching for the King James Bible tonight, and so if you go, if you look up a dictionary from around that era, Webster's 1828 is a great one. Even in English, this is what this word means. Overthrow means to turn upside down. To turn upside down. Understand that as Jonah came into that city, and he began to prophesy, and he began to preach, in 40 days, Nineveh will be turned upside down. Jonah thought that his prophecy was God is going to pick up the city, flip it on its head, drop it into dust. What actually happened was God came into the city. God took the people who were upside down, backwards, broken, self-defeating, wicked, and took them, flipped them right side up, and placed them and made them whole. Jonah comes in thinking, the judgment of God, and God says, oh, I've got something else in mind. And in 40 days, less than 40 days, Nineveh was a new city. Nineveh was turned upside down. It was overthrown, all right, but not the way that Jonah thought it would be. And understand this, that when we repent and when we turn to God, when we say, God, you know what? I'm not going to fight you anymore. I'm going to turn to you. God wants to turn you upside down, too. God wants to come into your life and he wants to overthrow it. And that's not so you can be burnt and you can be in the eye and you can be, oh, that's not what he's coming to do. Because the fact is you're born into that already. God doesn't have to do that. You're born into brokenness and sin. That's why our relationships tend to move towards chaos, right? If they're not maintained, what happens? They move towards chaos. If we're not careful, that's why we, we think, oh, I got to climb back on the throne. And the next thing you know, you're arguing with your husband or your wife. Uh, you're talking down to or condemning one of your children. You're acting in ways that you never would want to behave, but you had to climb back up on that throne. But you're okay, and you can do this all by yourself. You don't need God's help. Yeah, okay, right. God wants to step into your life, and he doesn't want to destroy you. He's not looking to pull you down. He's not looking to, no, he wants to pick you up, and he wants to overturn you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to come into your life and find an upside-down person, find a backwards, broken, torn-down, destroyed person. He wants to make you whole again. He wants to step in, but understand this. You have to let him. You have to repent. You have to turn towards him. God, I'm going to seek after you. I can't be the king on this throne anymore. God, I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to look to you. I can't rule this kingdom anymore. God, I, I don't have the ability. I don't have the power. I don't have the strength. I need you, God, to step in and do this for me. But the problem of repenting is that so often we repent of our repentance. So often we, we, don't, we don't want to stay off the throne. 
We have to climb back on there. And I think that's why Paul in the New Testament, he would write, I die daily to my sin. Every day I have to get up and I have to say, you know what, who's not the king? Me. You know who's not in charge around here? I'm not. You know who's not the one that's calling the shots? Me. Every day we have to do this thing. Because understand, God wants to turn you over because you're upside down to begin with. He wants to flip you right side up. He wants to come into broken marriages and downcast situations, and he wants, to, he wants to make them whole. He wants to come into fears and worries and replace them with peace and joy. He wants to come in. He wants to invade your wicked and your perverse thoughts. He wants to purify your heart. He wants to purify your mind. He wants to uh, make a new man, a new woman out of you. He wants to take you from death, spiritual death. He wants to bring you to life through the power of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants to work these things in your life. He wants to conquer your desires and your dreams that lift up your kingdom. And he wants to realign them with his mind, with his will. You see, Jonah's mission He thought his mission, he wanted his mission to be condemning the Ninevites. That wasn't it at all. His mission was to save the Ninevites. And here, as we look at this tonight, as we come face to face with Jonah, we come face to face with this king, with this message of God, understand that the most gracious thing, the most wonderful thing, the most freeing thing that you can do is climb off that throne. Where you're saying, my kingdom must exist, that's not going to get you anywhere. That's only going to lead to destruction. It's only going to lead to disaster. It's only going to lead to, ultimately, it's going to lead to death. It's the wages of sin. That's the fruit of sin. That's a natural consequence to living away from God. But understand this. God wants to invade that space, and God wants to turn you upside down. God wants to turn you upside down, not because you are starting right side up, and he wants to flip you and make you dizzy and spin you all around. No, 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 no. God sees where you are. God sees the hopelessness, and he wants to invade, and he wants to make all of these things right. And he can. He can. But you have to turn to him. Remember that control freak inside each of us? We don't want to do it. We want to fear. We want to worry. We want to be angry. We want to be bitter. We want to to shut our hearts to the things of God. No. You know when you'll find peace? You know, when you find contentment, you know, when you find joy, when you give up control, when you let go, and you say, God, mm, I can't do this, but you can. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we can come together.